Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Open your Bibles to uh, Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're in part 5 of our Victorious series. One more installment in that series next week, but today we're in Romans chapter 8. While you're turning in, let me ask you, what are some fears that you have dealt with in your own life. For some people, it might be you know, get, getting up and speaking in front of a group or meeting new people for the first time. Uh, some people are afraid of heights. Uh, some people maybe uh, they, they can't go to sleep in the dark. Uh, for, for some of us as adults, you know, maybe it's a, a fear of inadequacy, a fear of failure or of being alone or feeling unloved. For others, maybe it's, it's getting lost, getting separated from, from family. Uh, you know, just about every child has that primal fear of being abandoned. You know, that somehow their parents are going to put them down one day and, and never actually come back. Now, when your kids were little and you would drop them off at the uh, church nursery, did they ever experience separation anxiety? I mean, the, the moment that you walk out of sight, that child begins to cry. Or, you know, what about the, the child at the grocery store with their mother who gets separated from mom and panic begins to rise until she sees her mom once again? Here's the thing. In a sense, we never completely get over that fear because we don't want to be left alone in our lives. And so we'll put up with a lot of things, fickle friends, bad marriages, just to avoid the painful reality of being alone. And I mean, we even carry this fear with us sometimes as followers of Christ. We're somehow afraid that, that God's going to lose track of us or somehow something's going to happen to make him abandon us. Well, that fear is why Romans chapter 8 is such a powerful chapter in the Bible. Paul wrote this with confidence to assure us that nothing, not even death itself, would separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, will keep Jesus from being with us. In fact, that's the, the big idea behind today's study, is that believers have no reason to fear separation from God and from His love. And because that core truth is at the heart of our passage this morning, there's three key realities for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. The first one is this, that we are free from desperation. Look at verse 31 with me. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Now, a couple of things to note about God in these verses. First of all, that God offers his greatest power. Verse 31, Paul asks, what do we say in response to these things? 
Okay, well, what exactly are these things that Paul's referring to? Well, as Paul moves through Romans chapter 8, he is laying down one truth on top of another as he goes regarding the great benefits that we receive because we are in Christ, as he would often say, uh, because of Christ's saving work for us. Verse 9 says that we have received the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 11, we have been made fully alive in Christ. Verse 15, we are adopted into his family. Verse 17, we are co-heirs with Christ. Verses 18 through 23, that we have a glorious future in store for us. Verse 26, that we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us before the Father. See, these are all proofs that God is, in fact, for us. And when we ponder these, these unbreakable links in the chain of redemption, the conclusion is inevitable. If God is for us, then nobody can be successful against us. If his omnipotence, his power is at work on our behalf, then no lesser power can defeat him or thwart his plans for us. You see, you can't look at the gospel, any aspect of the gospel, and not see that God is for us. And when we understand that God is for us, well, it doesn't matter who's against us. You know, Paul was confident that God takes care of his people because... God loved us enough to give of himself. He gave his only son for us. And that love did not end at the cross. It continues today. That same love is at work right now in our lives to provide and to protect and to sustain and to intercede. So Paul's question here, you know, who can be against us? It's rhetorical. It really, he's not, he's not expecting an answer. I mean, the answer is pretty obvious. It's another way of saying, okay, th there is no one who could possibly be more powerful than God. Or of saying, no one can destroy us. Now, the idea is not that we'll never face opposition. It's simply that our opposition is ultimately doomed to fail. They may actually be against us, but they won't be successfully against us. So since God is on our side, we have nothing to worry about. In fact, verse 31 here is an echo of, of earlier scriptures that say a very similar thing. Uh, Psalm 118 verse 6, for example, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? In fact, the uh, writer of Hebrews quotes that one in Hebrews 13:6. Uh, Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? But who might Paul mean when he actually mentions those who are against us? That's a legit question. Well, I'll tell you, preacher, who might be against me, uh, the IRS, in-laws, uh, terrorists, bullies at work, an abusive spouse, corrupt politicians. Yeah, I, I get it. Our real-life enemies can seem to overshadow the ideas that are being conveyed here in Romans chapter 8. 
Yes, despite the spiritual promises, we still have to endure physical and mental and emotional struggles in this life. But you know what? Paul faced the same struggles that we face and a whole lot more. Paul was not writing this from inside a plastic bubble. In fact, a lot of what he wrote, many of the epistles he wrote, he wrote from prison. So when Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, he's comparing earthly opposition to the eternal power and presence of Almighty God. And he declares the winner. So nobody can overcome God's love for us. No matter what happens to us here on earth, God's the ultimate winner. And guess what? If we're on his side, we're going to be winners too. Read Revelation chapter 21. Still need help remembering that God is for you? Start with the realization that Jesus died in your place. Then acknowledge that Jesus is the one who supplies your needs. Jesus is the one who gives healing. Jesus is the one who guides you through tough times in life. He's the one who enables you to do things that you thought were impossible to do. The God who will never leave us or forsake us is the one whose power is at work on our behalf. But you see, the God who offers his greatest power is also the God who offers his greatest treasure. Look at verse 32. It says, He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? You know, when a world full of lost people needed to be saved by a sinless substitute, the God of the universe did not hold back his heart's most precious treasure, but gave him up to, to, to shame, to loss, to, to death on our behalf. And the logic that Paul is using here in verse 32, it's impeccable. You know, if God has already given us the greatest gift, Jesus, the pearl of greatest price, is there any lesser gift that he will not give? I mean, if, if he has already paid the, the highest price, will he hesitate to pay any lower price? If he has gone to such great lengths to secure our salvation, will he ever let us go? So here's a question. How would you interpret the all things that Paul says God graciously gives here in this passage? Well, I believe the all things that Paul's referring to are those things that are guaranteed as a result of Christ's death and resurrection. You know, things that include our final glory, but then all the stuff that happens, all the stuff that's given to us, all the things that provide that glory to us along the way, all the, the things that work together for our good, as Paul said in Romans 8.28, our salvation, God's Holy Spirit, all the blessings that we listed from the first part of this chapter, our daily strength, guidance, assurance, Fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The armor of God in, in Ephesians chapter 6. The gifts of the Spirit, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, this Paul's statement here in verse 32, 
Does that mean that God's going to give us everything that we want? Well, you know, just because you want an 85-inch big screen and a pink Cadillac convertible and a beach house doesn't mean that God is somehow obligated to give it to you. What Paul means when he says everything that we receive, whether it's spiritually or even materially, it's because of our union with Christ, because we are in Christ. So the statement's not so much about what is granted, or even the, the, the grantee, the, the receiver, so much as it is about the love of the grantor, if that isn't a word. Uh, you see, God's blessings don't stop when we're saved, but they continue on in our lives as his children. And God offers his greatest treasure, Jesus, and the many blessings that come with that gift. So because we are in Christ, we're not left to our own devices. We're not left alone, unprotected, unloved. We are free from desperation. Here's the second thing I want you to notice, though. We are also, number two, free from accusation. Look at verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised, but also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Now, you're going to find some legal language here in these verses. You know, you see words like accusation, justification, condemnation, intercession. And in this legal scenario, God is the judge. But we also find three specific realities that are in play with regard to us. The first thing I want you to notice here from verse 33 is that the accuser carries no threat. Look at the first part of verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Now that Greek word for accusation, it basically means to bring charges against. Against whom? God's elect. Who are God's elect? Believers in Jesus Christ. Now, let's take that thought, let's, let's personalize it just a little bit. When have you felt condemned or accused because you were a follower of Christ? Some of us have been there. We've been accused of being goody-goody, too good to associate with others, unwilling to party with the gang. Yeah, no, we can't count, we can't count on you for the heavy drinking. Are we, they, laugh, they laugh at us because you know, we refuse to tolerate bad language. Or maybe we're condemned at work because we refuse to go along with things that are unethical or immoral. Called a, called a prude. Made fun of for always being in church. Classified as backward, narrow-minded, a bigot, intolerant, xenophobic. Does any of that sound familiar? Oh, you, you just hate people. You fear people that, that don't believe the way you do. Of course, we can also count on the fact that Satan's going to be all up in our business. He's going to tell you that you are nothing but a filthy sinner who is not worthy of God's love. In fact, that name Satan means accuser. And while, to be honest, we are sinners who can never be good enough to match God's holiness on our own, the enemy has conveniently left out the most important part of the story. Jesus saves. 
You see, the prosecution will be unsuccessful every time. Paul's words here are actually reminiscent of a passage in Isaiah, chapter 50, verses 8 and 9. It says, The one who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us confront each other. Who has a case against me? Let him come near me. In truth, the Lord God will help me. Who will condemn me? So why will the prosecution be unsuccessful? On what grounds are we freed from those who would falsely accuse us or seek to condemn us? Well, because God has chosen us to be his and he has justified us already. Which really leads me to the, the next big thought in the next couple of verses here. Not only does the accuser carry no threat, but we also see the accused celebrates acquittal. See, Paul's reason why the prosecution is unsuccessful was that here at the end of verse 33, it says God is the one who justifies. Now that word justifies, it's another legal term, referring to being set right by God's irrevocable verdict. It destroys any charge at the final judgment against God's elect. Now understand, you know, in legal terms, acquittal does not necessarily mean that the defendant is innocent in a criminal trial. Rather, it just means the prosecutor failed to prove that the defendant was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So Satan may say that we're guilty, y'all, but we're justified by God. We are free. We are declared righteous before a holy God. When I'm justified before God, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And that's cause to celebrate. Because thanks to the finished work of salvation by Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection, God's verdict cannot be overturned. So the accuser carries no threat. The accused celebrates acquittal. But I want you to notice there's another work of Jesus Christ that's, that's ongoing here. We also see that the advocate continues his work. Look at verse 34. It says that Jesus is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. So the Bible tells us that after Jesus ascended to heaven, he was seated at the right hand of God. That's a position of, of honor, strength, authority, privilege. And that's where he's acting as the advocate for Christians, meaning that he is our great defender. This is the intercessory work that he's currently doing for all of those that believe in him. In fact, the uh, Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So Jesus is perpetually pleading our case before the Father, just like a defense lawyer who's working on our behalf. Now, Satan's going to keep accusing us before God. I mean, he's been doing that from the beginning, way back with Job. But the accusations fall on deaf ears in heaven because Jesus' work on the cross paid our sin debt in full. So when Jesus, or rather when God, looks at his children, what he sees is the righteousness of his son, Jesus. So it's great to know that our sin debt has been paid forever. But how does that help us in our daily lives? To know 
that Jesus intercedes for us. Man, it's a joy to know that someone, in this case, Jesus himself, is actually praying for us. To realize that somebody gets me. Somebody understands my situation, can interpret my cries to God. To know that Jesus sees the, the real problem, even when I'm too confused and can't. All right, so, so far in this passage in Romans 8, Paul has shown us that because we are in Christ, we are free from desperation. We are free from accusation. Here's the third thing I want you to see. We are also free from separation. Look at verse 35. This is a great passage here. Verse 35 says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so right off the bat here in verse 35, we encounter a pretty harsh reality about ourselves. We see, first of all, that we are challenged now, Paul uses another rhetorical question here, one that really doesn't demand an answer. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, if he wanted to answer the question, the answer would be pretty obvious. Uh, no one. But to prove his point, Paul raises seven different possibilities here. Affliction, which refers to external pressures, distress, really internal pressure, stress. Uh, persecution. A very real possibility for the first century church. Famine, of course, refers to a lack of food, to hunger. Nakedness can refer to, to you know, being in need of clothes or just to, to destitution in general. The Greek word that's translated danger can also mean peril, hazard, risk. And then he mentions sword. You know, that could have been a violent attack by a robber. It could be an invasion by an enemy army. It could have even referred to execution. And Paul knew what he was talking about. Now, though he didn't write this particular epistle from prison, over the course of his life, Paul spent more than his share of time in jail. I mean, he'd been imprisoned, whipped, beaten, shipwrecked, snake-bitten, he knew difficulty. He knew opposition. He knew persecution. Everything that Paul wrote about here in Romans chapter 8, he had experienced firsthand in the first century. Now, of course, in our 21st century culture, those things might take on a little bit different form. Affliction. Yeah, that can refer to all sorts of different troubles. Financial woes, health problems, family troubles, Famine or nakedness, you know, for us that could mean economic downturn, the, the loss of job, persecution or danger. And while not a whole lot of people in the United States are being martyred for their faith, we still get ridiculed. 
And you know, it's interesting, over the last several decades, the number of church burnings that are occurring here in America and the number of occurrences of gunmen walking into sanctuaries of churches and just opening fire. So times can be hard. And Paul never denied that. He never downplayed it. I mean, these are real world problems that he's addressing, certainly for the first century church, but even for Christians today. Now, somewhere around the globe, right now, this very moment, there is a Christian who is dealing with any or all of these realities that Paul wrote about. See, the harsh reality is that God doesn't promise us that we will never experience temptation or opposition or suffering. In fact, in verse 36, Paul's actually quoting from Psalm 44, 22 to state that all such opposition, the stuff that he's been describing, was actually anticipated in the Scripture. You see, Christ's love doesn't keep believers from trouble. In fact, it may actually increase our troubles. Suffering is not the result of God's people having turned from Him. It's often because of their faithfulness to Him. But you know what? There is a greater reality that supersedes all of our troubles. Yes, we are challenged, but get this. We are conquerors. Paul declared that in all these things, we're not just conquerors. He said in verse 37, we're more than conquerors. In fact, that Greek word conquer, it means to prevail completely. Emphasizes not just victory, but the totality of victory. We not only achieve victory, we are overwhelmingly victorious. Christy and I lived in Moore, Oklahoma for 15 years. Five-minute drive from Norman, home of the Oklahoma Sooners. I don't expect you to put your hand over your heart when you say Sooners. Uh, I, I get that. Your folks wear a different color of crimson. Um, suffice to say, you know, living there, we had more than just a passing interest in, in OU football. And one season, my sister-in-law and her husband were huge Texas A&M Aggies fans. They asked if we could procure some tickets to the Texas A&M OU game. So we obliged. The four of us headed to Norman for what we expected was going to be a spirited competition between conference rivals. It was anything but. I mean, it was a massacre, uh, a shellacking, a trip to the woodshed to open up a big old can of whooping. 77 to zero. And in an attempt to, to not run up the score, Oklahoma actually took their starting quarterback out. Uh, he didn't even play the entire second half. They only threw one pass the entire second half. It was not one of the finer moments in the history of Texas A&M football. Suffice to say, the car ride home was quite a bit more quiet. Yeah. The opposition had tried to put up a fight, but they were no match for the victors. The win was far beyond the scope of a regular victory. They were more than conquerors. And you see, for us to be more than conquerors, it means that we face the trials of life with the certainty that we are not alone. 
We approach even the darkest valleys with, with confidence, knowing that nothing can happen to us that's, that's not permitted by our loving Father. And even the hard stuff that he does permit, he can actually use that for our good. That's what Paul said in verse 28. So we have a mighty victor who fights for us. And through his sacrifice on the cross and his victory over sin, death, and hell, when he rose again, we are also victors in him. You know, so our suffering, it can't be seen as evidence that we're alone or that somehow we can lose his love because we have the very presence of God's Holy Spirit living within us every moment of every day until that time that we stand before him face to face because not only are we challenged, not only are we conquerors, but here's another thing, we are connected. In these last two verses, Paul listed 10 powers that are not able, will never be able to separate us from Christ's love. He mentions death. We know death is not the end. We think of death as an enemy, but, you know, uh, Philippians 1.21, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He mentions rulers. Your translation may say authorities or principalities. Now, it could be either earthly or spiritual, but it's contrasted with angels here, so it's probably a reference to demonic beings. The present or future it reminds us that, that nothing time brings where the problems or, or apprehension can come between Christ's love and us. That word powers refers to spiritual forces, neither height nor depth. That refers to the immensity of this physical universe. Neither time nor space can separate us from Christ's love. And then he caps this statement with this sweeping, comprehensive declaration any other created thing, anything else that anyone could possibly suggest or even imagine. And among all of these things, Paul says that he was persuaded that none of them would ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. In fact, in the Greek, that, that verb for persuaded, it's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense, it means it's a past action with present and ongoing effects. So in Paul's mind, it's a done deal. It will always be a done deal. He is convinced once and for all and for always that nothing can separate us from him. Church, you need to understand that the joys that erupt from these verses are based on realities that Paul experienced himself. But Paul's final words here remind readers that, you know, the only way we can experience the love of God is in Christ Jesus. And Paul had found Jesus Christ to be faithful, to be always present through all of his circumstances. See, our assurance, our confidence, it can't be found in ourselves, not for very long. It's in God. It's in his love for us. And separation from God and from his love is something that you and I will never have to fear because we're connected to him, because we're not alone, because we are in Christ. 
which really brings us full circle to the big idea this morning that believers have no reason to fear separation from God and his love for us. Okay, so in response to this reality, the reality of God's everlasting, unbreakable love for us, what steps do we need to take? How do we put feet to our faith and put this to work this week? Let me give you three starters, okay? Three action steps. The first one, survey. Survey. Make a list. Make a list of obstacles that you feel are working against you right now. Now consider how God might be using those, working in you, through you, to strengthen you in this time. Ask him, God, what is it you're trying to teach me in this circumstance? How are you working to make me more like Jesus in this trouble that I'm going through right now? So we survey. Here's another one. Share. Share. Open up. Find someone you can confide in. You know, we often allow our fear or our shame to, to close our hearts when it comes to challenging circumstances. Instead, be intentional, intentional rather, about sharing your experiences with somebody else this week. Confess your struggles. But at the same time, actively embrace God's love for you in the midst of that struggle. So we survey, we share. Here's the third one. Speak. Speak out. Be bold. Because, you know, our fears have a way of preventing us from taking action in Christ. Now, that action that you need to take, whatever God's leading you to do, it might look a little different for some of you. But you need to take a bold step this week to show your faith in the fact that you will never be separated from God's love. So it might mean speaking to someone about the gospel. It might be making a commitment to one of the ministries of this church. It might be giving up some of your resources for one of those ministries and so on. Church, what place does fear have in the life of a Christian? None. Fear is debilitating. Worry is literally sickening. In fact, it's the most disintegrating enemy of the human spirit because it eats away at you. Apprehension, dread, the expectation of evil, fear, those things have no place in the life of a Christian. Because remember, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one's going to accuse us. At least not successfully. God has justified us. And we will never be disconnected from his love for us. But you know what? If you're not a child of God, there's plenty to fear. You haven't experienced the saving love of Jesus Christ. You don't know the joy of a relationship with him. And you have to face the struggles of life without his love, without his Holy Spirit strengthening you, guiding you. And even more frightful than that, you face an eternity of suffering apart from him when you die. Of course, there's, there's good news. It does not have to be that way. God has given you the ability to choose for yourself. You can choose to give your life to him 
right now. If you will only by faith trust in Christ's forgiveness for all of your sin. Trust in the work that he did on the cross on our behalf. A job that he put the exclamation point on by rising again on the third day. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's living, whatever men may say. He is at the right hand of God right now, interceding on our behalf. Who would not want that? Who would not want a life of joy here on earth, an eternity of bliss in heaven with our Savior? Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.